The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. A uh, very warm welcome to Squawk Box this Thursday morning, live from London and from Cornwall in the southwest of England. So, your headlines. World leaders descending on the fantastic county of Cornwall here in the southwest of England uh, for the G7 summit, charged with tackling some of the greatest threats of our time. The United States is back, and democracies of the world are standing together to tackle the toughest challenges and the issues that matter most to our future. A new Atlantic charter, the US and the UK hark back to a wartime Churchillian pact between the two countries, cementing trade, travel and tech ties. G7 leaders, meanwhile, hoping to pledge 1 billion COVID vaccine doses for global distribution, with the US set to contribute 500 million from Pfizer, and talks are ongoing with Moderna for more. Goldman Sachs CFO Stephen Scher tells CNBC exclusively that markets may come under pressure if interest rates rise to address price concerns, with U.S. inflation data tipped to hit a 28-year high today. We're, we're all poised for considerable growth. It, it's already begun uh, in earnest in the United States, a bit slower in Europe, uh, both as a function of progression on the vaccine. Uh, I think the second half will be strong. Confidence among clients as we perceive it, is in fact strong as well. President Biden revokes a Trump-era executive order banning Chinese-owned social media apps, including TikTok and WeChat, instead ordering a review of the software. So, very good morning, everybody. You'll forgive me for my cynicism, but G7s historically have a pattern of over-promising and under-delivering. Will this time be any different, we wonder? Joe Biden has now arrived in the UK for his first overseas trip as president ahead of a G summit, G7 summit in Cornwall. The US leader will meet with British Prime Minister Boris Johnson in southwest England later today. The pandemic recovery is set to feature high on the G7's agenda, while leaders will also discuss global tax reform and digital currencies. The UK and US will agree a new Atlantic Charter as President Biden and Prime Minister Boris Johnson meet today. A technology pact, commitments to resume travel and a pledge to boost trade between the two are key features of the agreement. The Charter is modelled on a 1941 policy statement made by Prime Minister Winston Churchill and President Franklin D. Roosevelt, which set out their goals for a post-war world. Well, there is an old uh, saying, I think, coined by a British diplomat a long time ago, Steve, that there is no such thing as permanent partners or permanent alliances, only permanent interests. And as we look at not only this new Atlantic Charter, but the G7 shopping list of issues, do we get a sense here that finally we might start to get agreement between some nations rather than discord and disagreement? 
I think you both have already said so much that I want to respond to as well. And, and by the way, I agree with most of what you've said. I, I want to take one step back. I, I agree with you and I agree with a lot of our viewers about cynicism towards international meetings. I, you, Karen, have been to so many and I've been to a lot, dare I say, of G7s, of G8s, of G20s, where I have been stunningly underwhelmed. I told the previous show, Capcom, that I once got in trouble with um, the CEO of our previous owner because I had been so dismissive uh, about the worth of the communicate at the end of a G20 meeting. It was actually Cannes, uh, um, uh, gosh, 10 years ago. Uh, But I I do think, though, this one can be important, is important, and can be very, very relevant for a whole host of reasons. Now, whether they will succeed in rising to that challenge remains to be seen. I mean, Karen's already made some very important comments about the Atlantic Charter. Well, I I just want to remind people that that charter was, A, signed or or brought about. It wasn't actually called the Charter at the time. It was a joint declaration, but it was called Charter, funnily enough, by a a Labour newspaper a little bit later on. But but the fact of the matter is, um, it was basically the precursor to the GATT agreement, to the UN, to the NATO, to actually uh, making clear statements about territorial aggrandizement in a post-war world. Well, the Americans hadn't even entered the war when that treaty or that, that, that declaration was made. It was August 1941 and Pearl Harbor wasn't until December. So it's an amazing bit of foresight from those two leaders. And of course, uh, Churchill is someone that um, Boris Johnson has studied. Uh, he's written a book on it. I've read the book on it as well, the Churchill factor as well. Uh, and it, it, a boyhood fascination of, of, of Johnson's is also a boyhood fascination of mine about what Churchill was and what he did and how clever he was with words. In fact, he was the one who coined the special relationship as well, which uh, viewers will know if they've watched this show long enough that I think special relationship doesn't exist. And I agree with you uh, about uh, long-term interest being all where it's at as well. So let's spin forward to this meeting now. Is G7 relevant? Well, for a start, I want to make a, a statement. It's not the G7, this meeting. It's called the G7, but it's not. When you've got South Africa, when you've got India virtually because of the pandemic, when you've got Australia, when you've got South Korea, when you've got the EU representatives, von der Leyen and Charles Michel coming as well, plus the OECD, I've lost count of what you would call that. Would you call it a G13 or G11 plus? I mean, it, it could have many. of them. So you're talking about a gathering, not just of the seven, which you could absolutely question the relevance of, but, a, but you are getting a meeting of a whole host of democratic nations who have a whole host of problems, not least the fact that you've got some very large growing superpowers out there who think the time of the West is over. Uh, and namely, let's be honest about it, China thinks that the West is in interminable decline in some ways, or certainly some advocates of China, and they've sent their wolf warriors out to, to basically go forth uh, and, and bring a new world which where China has a more aggressive foreign policy perhaps as well, not just in Asia, but, but globally as well. So a counter to China, a counter to what's going on in Russia as well, plus facing all those global threats we've talked a lot about. So I think it's not just G7, but I think it's also about the wider issues. And I don't think Joe Biden is here to just talk about individual issues. I think he's here to tie up his EU summit, to tie up his NATO summit, to tie up the G7, and then, of course, end up in Geneva, which is going to be just the most fascinating meeting with President Putin. He already made some words about President Putin. Let's listen in. Travel to Geneva to sit down with the man I've spent time with before. President Vladimir Putin. We're not seeking conflict with Russia. We want a stable, predictable, predictable relationship. Our two nations share incredible responsibilities, and among them, ensuring strategic stability and upholding arms control agreements. I take that responsibility seriously. But I've been clear, the United States will respond in a robust and meaningful way when the Russian government engages in harmful activities. 
We're going to have some great chats over the next couple of days about the relevance of G7, where it goes wrong, where it goes right, what it achieves. But but I'm going to start off optimistic. And I I think I'm one of the greatest cynics out there as well. But I'm going to start off very optimistically. And I'll I'll give a bit of history for people. Um, About, oh gosh, eight years ago, I was in Northern Ireland, Locker and Enniskillen, for a G8 meeting, the last G8 meeting actually as well, with Mr. Obama, who I got a very brief question into, uh, and Mr. Putin as well. And David Cameron was the host. And the communique at the end of it was, what's really one of those soggy pieces of paper I've been talking about as well, where it was all about trade, transparency and tax. And really nothing happened for a very long time. But already this time round, and I know that Karen and I and you have debated this as well, but there is a skeleton of a very international international agreement on tax already done. That's already kind of come out or been um, showcased at this G7. So one could argue, if one was being optimistic, that already this is far more successful a meeting, or certainly the build up to it has been, than many, many of its predecessors. Don't get me wrong, I think our cynicism and our viewers' cynicism about G meetings, about international meetings, is well-founded in history as well. And again, I've been to enough of them where I've been so underwhelmed. But I think this one is very important for Western alliances and Western democracies. As we come into this, though, I think what's interesting, Steve, is there is a hard edge to this Biden administration. And I think we've already seen it with some of the legislation that's passed this week, specifically to take on China in areas of robotics, AI and other uh, technology areas. It harks back to a time of the 1950s and DARPA, as it effectively was, government funded research agencies. That's one leg of competition. The other, which I I think is fascinating, and and you focused on Russia, so let me just focus on that for a moment here. To what extent are we looking at uh, the Biden administration now trying to divide Russia and China and Russia's pivot east and take us back to 1970s style uh, realpolitik, which is ultimately about dividing large blocks and conquering? Uh, It's very interesting that there are so many issues where we need to see agreement. And yet on one or two, it's about division and it's about isolation. Spot on. So in later hits, let's spend a lot of time talking about COVAX and, and the pandemic, of course, which is the backdrop to this. And we'll talk about climate initiatives as well and perhaps green bank initiatives. We'll do that later on. But the point you raise is very important as well. Railpolitik are on both an international foreign policy front and indeed on an economic front as well, because herein lies the problem. You will find perhaps no greater ally to the US in terms of, of how, from a defence point of view, the British see the Russians. Um, and, and basically Europe has moved over as well to becoming a little bit more aggressive in its language, a little bit tougher in its scrutiny of China and Russia. But from a trade point of view, uh, and this is where Biden's going to find it very difficult, how do you bring along Angela Merkel uh, to have a tougher line on Russia? How do you bring the EU, which has so much parallel trade uh, with the Chinese, to actually think about their supply chains and bringing supply chains home or bringing some more IP technology defences on board as well? Because China, of course, not only the largest trading partner of the UK now post-Brexit, but of course, it is the largest trade partner individually on a country basis of, of, of China and Germany as well. How do you do what President Trump failed to do, but actually really quite rightly perhaps pointed out is, well, we have enormous amounts of defence for you, Germany, and we, we invest a lot in the Western European defence, uh, and yet you've um, allowed a Nord Stream 2 to be completed as well. Uh, and indeed, you're going to increase your reliance energy-wise on uh, the Russians as well. So I think it's very, very important to tie the two together and say this is where it gets really complicated. From a defence and foreign policy point of view, yes, 
yes, you can talk tougher uh, about better defences, greater military, more aggression, uh, perhaps towards the aggressors themselves. But how do you do it on an economic basis as well? Uh, and that is where Mr Biden has to bring more meaningful, more meat to the table as well, rather than just the bones of some great ideas. Nuances here, Steve, are going to be very important. I think what jumps out to me is how President Biden has been able to bring his expertise to the table very early on when it comes to navigating these big groupings. He's been on the scene for many, many years. And I think if you look at the last couple of presidents, almost newbies on this scene didn't really know how things worked as well as what President Biden does. And so this preloaded tax statement doesn't surprise me. But if I compare it to China, and this is where it gets interesting, I think, because you can see the pushback that the Americans want to have already on the Uyghurs, on Hong Kong, on the South and East China Seas. These are no-go zones in terms of China as it talks about sovereignty. And of course, there's the belligerent nature of the relationship with Australia now. And I think if you look at those two players in the Asia region, it's Japan and Australia, that will be arguing for more support from international allies to, to tackle China at this point. But I sort of wonder what's going to be coming from the European side. If you look at what the French want, they do not want to have this sort of very hostile approach to China, almost ganging up against the mainland. So you don't get this situation where China feels more isolated and doubles down these regional uh, concerns that it has. So what happens from here? Because if you think about one of the other big motivations, Steve, it's climate change. And this is an area of cooperation, potentially, that uh, many countries want China on board for. So... You know, how do they get to the point where they tackle the challenges that they have, where they even go there on these issues that China doesn't want to discuss, but still have cooperation on climate change? I think you've put it beautifully, Karen. I think there are lots of human rights issues about the Uyghurs, about what's going on in Hong Kong, uh, and indeed the navigation of, of um, the South China Seas, for instance, as well, that a lot of those countries you mentioned have some very strong opinions on as well. But they also, including, you know, Scott Morrison's Australia, still, despite all the disputes it's having with China, and you know this way better than I did, has an enormous trading relationship uh, with China as well. Uh, South Korea, India, Japan, or in, uh, all of these countries as well, uh, they, they, they want to perhaps face down China on some fronts, but they also want the business that comes from China as well. So I think, again, it just tallies back to the point that you can be aggressive on a, a defence and foreign policy point of view, but will that transpire uh, to barriers on an economic point of view? Will it transpire with more sanctions, for instance, as well? And will that turn into uh, a more tit for tat? I think you also raised some very interesting points about climate initiatives, climate financing, uh, and indeed post-pandemic recovery financing as well. And I think there is a feeling from a lot of nations that the West needs to just step up. I mean, mentioned green financing initiatives as well. Uh, what is it Boris calls it? A Marshall Plan uh, for a post-COVID world as well. Uh, and, and, and just so tying in a post-COVID world and green initiatives. I think the West has basically got to turn up with some, some dollars or some euros and say, look, we're here at the table. It's not just about the Chinese uh, providing financing in a lot of areas such as uh, poor areas of Asia, uh, um, dare I say, developing areas of Africa and elsewhere. Steve, it looks like you've got your hands full. This is a huge event and a, a real outside broadcast. It must be fantastic to be out on the road covering such an event and seeing so many world leaders descend on Cornwall. Uh, thanks for seeing the scene. Let's um, pivot back to the markets. What we've got uh, has been a, a patch of red across these markets. Probably no surprise, given what we've been talking about all week. Investors very much uh, just waiting it out for the inflation data. And just to recall what we're expecting, 0.4% acceleration in the month of May, which would take the annual pace to 3.4%. That's what investors are concerned about. And you can see a cautious approach to the markets. Uh, big moving stocks for the Dow. 
It was Caterpillar. It had the most uh, negative impact on the Dow. Facebook, uh, the social media platform, to the downside for the S&P and the Nasdaq. And uh, despite the fact we ended up in the red, and uh, keep in mind it's back-to-back -back losses for the likes of the Dow, third straight negative session. We did have a little bit of early appetite again for the S&P 500 intraday, just not holding into the finish. But we will be watching and waiting for the reaction to this data later on today and what real yields do on the markets as well. Elsewhere, a meme stocks, a lot of uh, uh, trading around some of these big names. And we were telling you about Clover Health the day earlier where investors had bid up the stock very, very aggressively. Uh, Reddit uh, investors or Reddit um, media uh, proponents have uh, this stock in its sight. But uh, what's happened here is that investors are now question whether it's even a really a meme stock. It was up, what, 86% on Tuesday, 32% on Monday and down 23% yesterday. This was after a short seller Heidenberg researcher flagged it up back in February. But uh, it seems as though some of those Reddit traders have moved on to some of the other targets out there, including clean energy fuels. And that one surged 31% yesterday. I think what jumps out is that uh, these traders, the retail traders, had very much been in lockstep on certain stocks. And when there's fading appetite and uh, that uh, those gains don't stick on the markets, you can see what happens. And Clo perhaps Clover is a good example of that. Elsewhere, GameStop, uh, that stock trades a little bit firmer. There's uh, been a refreshment of the management lineup at GameStop. Wendy's is the other fascinating one. In fact, you saw a downgrade, real fundamentals coming into the mix yesterday. A broker downgraded the burger chain's a stock, and uh, this triggered a reaction. The stock was down 12%. Keep in mind, this is slightly different to the other meme stocks, and it's not a heavily shorted stock on the markets by any means. In terms of the Asian markets, uh, this is how we are seeing the trade. As we talk about the G7, the potential for uh, big moves to, and uh, conversations to take place in Cornwall, you can see these markets are trading a little bit firmer. Inflation uh, out later on, and these markets will be uh, in catch-up mode tomorrow, re reacting eight-tenths of a percent higher for the Chinese market at this stage. The dollar, let's see how we're perched on that trade as well. We've got uh, the sterling euro trade a little bit weaker versus the dollar. So the dollar's making some gains there, as you can see but on the back foot versus the safe haven Japanese yen and also versus the Chinese currency. And, uh, of course, uh, worth noting, we'll be watching the euro closely for any movement around the ECB later on today, Jeff. Yeah, thanks very much, Karen. Let's take the break. We'll be back in just a moment. Despite inflationary pressures, then reports of taper talk may have been exaggerated. At least that's what the markets seem to think. If we look at the direction of bond yields, we're going to take you out to Frankfurt ahead of the ECB's meeting later today. Stay with us for that. Plus, just a reminder, terrific podcast today. Go to the website, have a listen, and you can catch up on all the important news around the upcoming G7 meeting. Listen to CNBC's Beyond the Valley, the podcast that explores the biggest tech news from across the globe. Join me, Arjun Karpal. And me, Tom Chitty, every week as we bring you insights into the top stories, unpack the latest trends, and find out where the industry is headed. Now available on Spotify, Apple Music, and Google Podcasts. Welcome back. Markets could decline if uh, central banks raise interest rates to offset inflation pressures. Goldman Sachs's CFO Stephen Scher told CNBC in an exclusive. Jamana spoke to him as part of the lender's European Financials Conference. She began by asking for his outlook on the state of the U.S. recovery. 
we're all poised for considerable growth. It, it's already begun uh, in earnest in the United States, a bit slower in Europe, uh, both as a function of progression on the vaccine. Uh, I think the second half will be strong. Confidence among clients, as we perceive it, is in fact strong as well. There is obviously risk that we'll see some overheating. I think our collective view here is that uh, what we're seeing by way of inflation and price pressure uh, is more transitory than it is permanent. So we're seeing inputs to the likes of automobiles and the like through semiconductor and supply chain as being pinched, but that's a transi transitory element uh, in terms of what may play out. Uh, likewise, we're seeing uh, very, very sharp uh, increases in prices around uh, some of the COVID-affected areas like hotels and airlines. But again, I think that uh, begins to, to moderate uh, and uh, risk of inflation, therefore, low, certainly not off the table. And I think a risk that uh, the, the central banks, including the Fed, are in a position to handle. So echoing what, uh, what, what the Fed essentially has been saying about inflation being transitory, but what if it isn't? Uh, how much of a headwind do you think high inflation would pose to your business particularly as it's going to impact the high-growth tech sectors of the economy uh, that have propelled so much capital markets activity over the last year? Sure. Well, there's no question that our business is a function of where the broader uh, economy sits. And if, in fact, if in fact inflation uh, was to take lift, I think what central banks would do to address it uh, would have a negative consequence for equity markets more broadly. Uh, but again, you know, I, I believe and, and, and the economists here at Goldman believe that this is more of a transitory uh, sort of proposition. Uh, and we still see circumstances in the market now, including low interest rates, including elevated equity prices as giving rise to uh, considerable activity in the moment around the merger business and equally around uh, capital market businesses, both in equities and in credit. But again, if circumstances were such that inflation did in fact take hold and central banks needed to take action, that would, you know, no question have a negative consequence for the broader markets and would impact a number of different businesses, the least of which would be ours. Stephen Scher there. China's central bank governor says he expects inflation to come in below 2% this year and that monetary policy will remain steady for the time being. The PBOC's Yi Gang told a Shanghai investment forum the bank is balancing both inflationary and deflationary forces amid ongoing macro uncertainties due to the pandemic. The European Commission is launching legal action against Germany's constitutional court after it ruled last year that the ECB had acted beyond its mandate when it launched its 2015 bond-buying program in the wake of the Eurozone debt crisis. Brussels says the decision risks setting a precedent that undermines EU law. Germany's top court eventually did sanction the ECB's asset purchasing scheme after Berlin showed the central bank actor with, quote, plausible proportionality. The European Central Bank is expected to keep the stimulus taps flowing when its governing council meets later today. Despite inflationary pressures in the euro area hitting a two-and-a-half-year high last month, the central bank is also slated to release its quarterly growth and inflation forecasts, both of which are expected to be revised upwards as the bloc continues to lift lockdown restrictions. And let's get out to Annette for more. She joins us from outside the ECB in Frankfurt. Annette, I know a lot of the economists are closely eyeing those inflation numbers today from the ECB and any tone on pricing pressures because there is one view that given persistently low inflation in the eurozone, 
if you see it flare up here, that it may be a signal to the world economy that in fact these are not transitory pricing pressures. Yeah, exactly. I think the markets are mainly looking out at A, what they're saying about inflation, whether there's any change in tone, because so far what we're hearing from the ECB, they think that's still a temporary uptick in inflation and uh, by next year it will go down uh, once again. Another factor or another point, uh, the market is looking out at any hint that they could actually use um, the word flexibility when it comes to the run rate of the purchases, whether they keep it at this significantly higher pace than before, around 85 billion euro a month, or whether they think they could use, as I said, the word flexible around that and could perhaps downscale the purchases during the months of summer, because clearly the situation has completely changed from back in March when they uh, reintroduced that significant, uh, that phase, uh, that that. Uh, phrase significant higher purchases. So these are the two areas. And of course, anything about the economic outlook. Currently, the risks are still tilted to the downside in their assessment. And it's mainly uh, expected that they are going to say that the risks are broadly balanced with that improved outlook for the economy. And anything on tapering, of course, would be like supermarket moving, but we can't really expect anything um, like that because most economists are expecting that this decision will be pushed uh, out to September and also what we have been hearing from different policymakers in the governing council in recent speeches is suggesting that tapering is really not the topic for today. With that, back to you. Terrific, Annette. You've laid out the issues very neatly for us. Let's bring in Sylvia Ardana, Chief European Economist at Barclays. Um, Sylvia, the only debate seems to be around the point that um, was flagged up there by Annette, whether we get a technical adjustment now in the pace of the PET programme. Um, what do you think um, is going to happen over at Barclays and where is the balance of risks for investors today, either in sovereign bonds or European equities? Good morning. We think be any technical adjustment today that the ECB will leave the pace of purchases unchanged. Now, having said that, language matters, and so uh, nuances will be watched carefully by the market. There could be a variety of formulation through which the ECB signals that the pace will be left unchanged. Uh, first and foremost, they could say, in our view, that, for example, the pace remains at the average of the Q2. And again, there is some uncertainty there and they leave some ambiguity because we know that they bought through PEP 80 billion in uh, March and in April and May, more or less. But obviously, the pace of June is still unknown. Uh, they could say close to the pace of Q2. They could say leave the very high. They could say high. So all these little changes might uh, clearly be, uh, you know, um, market moving. Uh, in terms of the risk balance, uh, again, to the meeting in general, I think that expectations have shifted quite a, a bit in the next, in the last two weeks after the ECB speeches. We have always been on the dovish side. Um, after the March meeting, but now I think the market has converged to uh, to that, and so I would think that because of growth are going to revise quite significantly higher in our view, the balance of risk could be more on the hawkish side. But just because the market has already moved a lot, yes, yeah, Sylvia, very interesting the way that both 
Today's ECB meeting and the inflation data in the United States appears to be being shrugged off by bond markets. And if anything, they see this as a bit of a snooze fest, given that we continue to see uh, rates come down at this point. Do you think that means we're getting to a consensus view here that the central bank view of transitory inflation is the right one? Definitely, I would say for uh, the euro area economy, I think this interpretation is also the one we have. Uh, we we think that uh, inflation is going to accelerate further and peak in November, uh, and and then it will begin to go down. Uh, we also remind our clients, our readers, that uh, headline inflation has picked up above the uh, ECB mandate, but core inflation is still pretty low. And we see a considerable amount of uh, slack in the labor market in the euro area and no wage pressure. So it is difficult in an environment with uh, inflation expectations anchored at lower level than the ECB policy mandate, slack in the labor market, potential scarring from the crisis when the fiscal policy support gradually will begin to uh, be scaled back, uh, that uh, that we could see, um, you know, inflationary pressures that are going to be persistent and in the core metrics. Sylvia, as we talk about the economic scarring, where does Europe stand? Because we talk about the United States trying to recapture some of its GDP very quickly. It's going to take longer on the labour market. But where is Europe uh, by comparison? I think qualitatively we are in the same place. I mean, first of all, remember that you know a GDP in the first quarter still declined in the euro area, even if less than expected. The flash print was revised up quite significantly. Nevertheless, uh, GDP is still about you know five percent below the pre-pandemic crisis. When you look at the labour market, uh, there is still fraction of the employee population on furlough schemes uh, around you know 7% it was in in uh, in uh, february march uh, last data that, that we have uh, around you know in germany on average dcb said you know 5.9% of the labor force um, hours of work have gone down significantly. And when we look at job vacancies rates, uh, they've gone up uh, in, in France, in, in Germany, but they're still very low compared to pre-pandemic, while in the US, they're much further ahead of us in that respect. So I would say the slack in the labor market is uh, definitely um, higher than, in, than uh, you, know, you could tell by just looking at the unemployment rate. Which is one element of pricing pressure, too. And what we've seen through the U.S. lens, the tight labor market has the ability to drive up hiring costs. When it comes to Europe, how transitory do you think the inflation story is going to be here as you put into the different factors from housing to oil to you know, energy prices to, to food? And then, of course, what we're seeing on the labor market. Yeah, we think you the inflation accelerates, you know, in the second half of the year still. And, and again, it's a combination of base effects, higher commodity prices, but also uh, some firms will take advantage of the fact that demand will be uh, pretty uh, robust in the next couple of quarters, in our view. But then, you know, beyond that, we see inflation again. We have average inflation in the euro area going down to 1.2, 1.3% next year, uh, both on a headline and core base. And this is, in our view, due to the fact that wage pressures are going to be very difficult to materialize in an environment when there is 
lot of slacks in the labor market. And keep in mind also that uh, there has been a decline in labor force participation. It is likely that when uh, the economy starts picking up, workers will start looking for jobs again. So unemployment might go up, even I would say for a good reason, right? The fact that you have people coming back to the labor markets. And firms, because they decreased hours of, of work, are likely to first increase the number of hours per worker and then to hire new workers. So on balance, you will have more workers looking for jobs and initially not as many firms posting jobs, you know, to a sufficient pace to basically, uh, you know, uh, balance this, this increase uh, um, in, uh, in the labor force. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.